Thanks, Lexi. How are we doing tonight, crew? Yes, I have been to the top of the math building. If you would like the secret, come find me later. I'll, uh, I'll tell you about the secret route. Um, also, happy Valentine's Day. I thought for Valentine's Day we would talk about something, you know, really romantic. Science, you know. You can already feel it starting to get warmer in this room, you know. I know it's... Um, but no, in particular, tonight we're going to talk about the relationship uh, between science and faith. And we're talking about that because, uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one reason is because I think uh, in our culture, and uh, and a lot of times at this uh, place like this, a place like the University of Maryland, um, sometimes these two things don't go together. Uh, sometimes people think that these two things, belief in a personal God and belief in empirical science are these these mutually exclusive things that you have to choose between, that either you have to choose to be a person of science or you have to choose to be a person of faith. And because we live in a scientific world and because uh, the evidence, you know, because science is so obviously true, and therefore we have to reject religion and reject faith and reject God. And uh, I think it's a great question, and I think it's, it's one we want to uh, consider and look into. Um, I think the second reason is because many of you um, do actually believe in God, and you are, are studying science. Uh, you are, you're studying biology or chemistry or physics, um, and you might be wondering, you know, does my faith have anything to do um, with what I'm studying or with what I'm preparing to do uh, in my future calling or vocation or field? Um, are they just these two separate departments that never coexist, that never come together? Um, or are they actually related? Do they actually, are they actually compatible? And so I'm hoping that tonight would be the beginning of a conversation about, about these things. And my hope is not really to, not actually to, to land the plane on all these issues that I'm going to be talking tonight, but actually um, to, uh, to take the plane off the runway. Um, and into the sky for you, um, and to so that it can be uh, uh, the beginning of a journey for you of of exploring and learning uh, more about the relationship between science and faith. And one of the ways that we're going to uh, continue that discussion is uh, we're going to do some Q and A after this talk. So as you uh, as you hear what I'm saying tonight, I'd love to interact with you if you have questions. Uh, so. So throughout the, the talk, there's going to be um, a number behind the screen. And so if you have a question, um, go ahead and text in that question. Um, and, and afterwards, we're going to have a little bit of Q&A. Um, I hope that we can get to a lot of questions. But if, if we don't have time to get to your question, um, I would love to, to still talk about it sometime and talk about it tonight or talk about it uh, sometime next week. Um, so the, the number on the screen is going to be uh, it's going to be on like the last couple of slides of the talk. So. So it's going to be there. So if, you, if a question pops up, write it down, um, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, the number will be on the screen at the end. Uh, on your seat, there's a little handout uh, that provides a little outline of my talk, so you can kind of track along and see where you're going. So uh, you can feel free to grab that, uh, take that home with you, um, or use it as a way to, to wrap up your gum later. That's also a good use, a good use of that piece of paper. Tonight, we're going to talk about five reasons uh, why science and faith are compatible. Um, this isn't an exhaustive list. I think that there's a lot of other things that we could talk about. Um, but we're going to talk about five reasons why science and faith uh, can coexist, why, they're, uh, why, they're, why, why they can be complementary for us. Uh, so first of all, we're just going to go, go ahead and dive right in. So here's, here's the first reason uh, why science and faith 
um, can coexist. The first reason is that historically, uh, there have always been scientists who believe in God. Uh, Throughout history, if you think about it, some of the most influential scientists in our world have believed in a personal God. Uh, Some of these scientists who who have made discoveries that uh, we kind of take for granted today in our world. So thinking about people like Galileo, who discovered the Earth's Earth's orbit around the sun. Uh, Thinking about people like Isaac Newton, who formulated the laws of motion um, and gravity. Uh, Francis Bacon, some would call the father of uh, the scientific method. Johann Kepler, who uh, sort of theorized the laws of planetary motion, and, and many, many others. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that we could talk about, uh, scientists who, who have believed in God, but they all believed in a rational God who created a rational universe with rational laws that were ordered and predictable, and therefore it was that belief, it was that assumption that allowed them to conceive of doing science in the first place. Now, what you, if you know history, what you might say back to that is, well, okay, well, it's obvious that those scientists uh, would have believed in God because they lived um, in, in the West, they lived in Europe, and in a culture and a time where belief in God was just sort of, um, that was the air that you breathed. It was, just was, it was in a setting where Christianity was the dominant culture, and so, of course, they believed in God. Um, you know, what about, what about today? You know, what, what about scientists today? Um, and that's actually, that's actually a good question. Um, but it's interesting because if you look at um, today, if you look at scientists um, today, what you actually find the same thing. You'll find that all across the world that there are many scientists who believe in a personal God. So in 1916, there was this famous study done by uh, an American psychologist named James, James Leba. And James Leba was actually an atheist, but he studied the psychology of religion. And he was interested in um, what scientists thought about God, and so he did this survey where he surveyed, uh, you know, thousands of scientists on their views about God, and uh, asking them if they believed in a God, a personal God who communicated with humanity. And here's what he found. Here's what his study found. His study found that 40% said yes. 40% said we believe in a personal God. 40% did not. And 20% said we're unsure. We're undecided. Now that same study was repa- repeated 80 years later in 1997. So it was a, a long time. A lot of culture had changed. It was repeated 80 years later, and uh, the findings were, were again published uh, in the scientific journal of Nature. And what that study found was that there was no statistical difference between when that, first, that study was first done. In 80 years, the results were the same. About 40% of scientists believe in a personal God, about 40% don't, and about 20% are undecided. Many scientists find no contradiction between the reality of science and the belief in God. Uh, one of the best examples of this is a guy named Francis Collins, who is a geneticist. And Francis Collins was appointed by President Obama in 2009 uh, to be the director of the National uh, Institutes of Health, um, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, right down the road. Um, and at, at NIH, Collins leads the Human Genome Project, which is the, one of the most innovative projects in modern science. Uh, what the Human Genome Project does is to map all of the genes in human DNA uh, to, cre- to unravel the code of human DNA. And the research that they've done is groundbreaking in terms of what it means for the field of genetics and what it means for, trini- for treating uh, genetic diseases. And so what's interesting about Collins' life is that he didn't grow up in a, in a religious home. He grew up, his parents uh, didn't believe in God. They were agnostics. 
but, but Collins became a Christian later in life. And he wrote a book um, about his story and about uh, how he considered scientific evidence. In his book, The Language of God, a scientist presents evidence for belief. And he talks about how it wasn't ignoring science, but it was actually studying science that led him to his conversion from an atheist to a Christian. And, and in his book, so, so Collins is a geneticist, and so he talks a lot about DNA. Um, and a point that Collins makes is, look, anywhere that we see information, any place in the world where we see language, we automatically assume that there's a mind behind it. The most rational conclusion that you can make when you see information or when you see language is that there was a mind that produced that information or language. It doesn't just happen randomly. Even if you're walking in the middle of the forest and you notice a scrap of paper on the ground and it has words or numbers, or even if those words or numbers aren't even, even if they don't like come into a sentence or mean anything, if you see information, if you see language, you assume that there's a mind behind it. It didn't happen randomly. And what Collins says, look, when we look at DNA, DNA is some of the most complex set of information that we have. I mean, it's millions of characters long. It's, it's highly, highly complex. Scientists are discovering how much more complex it is every day. Um, it's one of the most complex sets of information that we know of. Um, and Collins says, look, what's, what makes better sense of the evidence? What's a more rational conclusion? That this highly, highly set of complex information called DNA um, was just there randomly, that it was just put there by an unguided process, or that there was, in fact, an intelligent mind that made DNA, that, that put it there. That when we see information, that we, that we can rationally conclude that there was a mind behind it. So secondly, second reason why science and faith are compatible is that science doesn't give us it doesn't actually give us complete knowledge of the world. That we actually need other disciplines like philosophy and history, art, and theology to do that. Science isn't the only way that we can know stuff. Now, this is a fairly simple point, but it's one that needs to be made. Uh, because a lot of people in our culture, a lot of uh, people here at the University of Maryland, maybe even some of your professors would say, you know, science is really the only way, the way that we can know stuff. Everything else is just opinion or conjecture. Science is based on fact. Everything else is kind of opinion. The problem is, is that that statement, it can't actually live up to its own standard. So if you say that science is the only way that we can have knowledge of the world, think about that for a second. How would you test that scientifically? How would you observe that? How would you experiment with that? How would you test that in an empirical way? The, the problem is you can't. You can't test that scientifically because it's not a scientific claim is a philosophical one. It's a philosophical statement to say science is the only way we can know things. It's, it's in the realm of epistemology. Epistemology is in, this, in, the, uh, in the domain of philosophy, of, of how we know what we know. To say science is the only re- reliable way to know things is a non-starter because you can't actually verify that statement through scientific proof, which is why we need other disciplines like history, philosophy, theology. Science tells us what we can perceive with our five senses, but there's more to our five senses than what we can know. Um, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, converted to Christianity, puts it this way, science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. But why anything comes to be there at all, and whether there's anything behind the things that science observes, something of a different kind, this is not a scientific question. Think about it. It's common sense 
to understand that there are often two more than there's often more than one kind of explanation for something. So why is the water boiling? Right. So on one hand, the water is boiling because if you apply heat to a substance, the molecules in it will start to move faster and faster. If you apply enough heat, the molecules will move fast enough, and then it'll, it'll start to boil. Now, that's the, that's the scientific explanation for why the water's boiling. But there's another explanation for, for why the water's boiling. It's because I want to make a hot cup of tea. That's why the water's boiling. And that's a question of meaning and purpose. To put a philosophical term on it, that is the teleological explanation for why the water's boiling. Telos, the end, the purpose, the reason for why something exists. Now, which one's true? Is the water boiling because the molecules are going fast, or is the water boiling because I want tea? The answer is both, right? And so we see, I mean, it's common sense to see that there is more, there's often more than one explanation for something. John Lennox, professor of applied mathematics at Oxford, puts it like this. He says, science is no more in conflict with God as an explanation for the universe as the law of internal combustion is in conflict with Henry Ford as an explanation for the motor car. Just because science explains something does not, doesn't mean there's not also another explanation to it. The relationship between science and faith is not either or. It's a both and. They don't give us conflictual takes on the world. Rather, they give us complementary takes on the world. Number three. I just put up two fingers. Three. The evidence for evolution isn't in conflict with belief in God or Christianity. This is probably the crux of the issue for a lot of us, right? So this is evolution, the, the origins of life, is one of the, main issue, one of the main places where the conflict between science and faith come in. So what do we say about this? Let's say a couple things. First, really the issue, about, the issue of evolution is really small potatoes when it comes to the question of God. It really is. Uh, I'm not discounting the, all, the, all the evidence and, and all the weight behind the theory of evolution, but I'm just saying when it comes to the question of God, it's really not a major issue. Here's why. Let's say, for example, let's just say Darwinian evolution by natural selection. Let's say that whole theory is 100% true. Uh, we, we buy all of it. It's 100% true. Even if Darwinian natural selection is 100% true, you still have to answer at least at least three major questions that are proportionally much more consequential for whether there's a God or not. Uh, and these questions science has not been able to give a good explanation for. So here, here's three questions that you have to answer still. The first is, how did biological life even get there in the first place? How do we get from non-living matter in the universe to that first living cell? There, there, up to this point, there's only been speculation on this. There's no scientific consensus. There's no unity on, what, on what, how that happened. How did biological life get there in the first place? Second, where did the universe come from? Where did all the stuff in the universe come from? What caused it to happen? Why is there something rather than nothing? You say, okay, well, so we know how the universe started, right? If you take an astronomy class here at Maryland, they'll tell you the Big Bang happened. There's a lot of scientific evidence for that, right? We know how it started. But why did it start? Where did it come from? What caused it? Where did all this stuff in the Big Bang, where did all of it come from? There's no scientific consensus on that. Number three, why is the universe 
so incredibly fine-tuned for biological life? Why is it so incredibly fine-tuned for biological life? I'll defer to Francis Collins on this one. Francis Collins says this. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew that we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and the weak nuclear forces, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would be no galaxy, no stars, no planets, no people. If any of the constants that make our universe what it is, if they were off by one part in a million, or in some cases one part in a million million, life, the universe, could simply not exist. Now, you tell me what's more rational. To believe that that happened, that all those constants came together just randomly, just by the product of chance, just by the product of an unguided process, or that there was an intelligent mind, that there was a rational mind ordering and governing all of it. It seems to me uh, that as someone not who studied science, but as someone who studied philosophy and theology, that there are far greater questions about biological life and about the existence of the universe. And so to me, to reject God on the basis of evolutionary evidence completely misses the point. It completely misses the point. It's an it's exaggeration. It's way over-exaggeration of what evolution, what evolution can actually demonstrate. Here's the second thing I think that we can say about evolution. The second thing is that, that there are Christians who are scientists, who are expert in their fields, who would say they believe in the biblical account of creation, they believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is true, and yet who hold a spectrum of beliefs on, the, on human origins. So some Christian scientists would say that God created the world in six 24-hour periods, six days of creation. Some Christian scientists would say that God created the world in that the days of creation in Genesis 1 were metaphorical, that they, were, they refer to um, analogical periods of time, six periods in history. This is what many people in the intelligent uh, design can't believe. And there's even, you know, this is, these are broad strokes, right? There's, there's uh, a spectrum even within these views. There are also Christian scientists who would say, I believe Genesis 1 and 2 is true, but that God created life through a process. This is the, the evolutionary creation or the, the theistic evolution camp. Um, a great example of this is... Um, an organization called BioLogos. So uh, Francis Collins was actually instrumental in starting this organization. Um, if you have never heard of BioLogos, I would encourage you to check it out online and look at their resources. Um, but in BioLogos is a network of, of Christian scientists who would say that, the way, that they see harmony between evolutionary biology and the Christian faith. Their mission statement is that BioLogos invites the church and the world to see the harmony between science and biblical faith as we present an evolutionary understanding of God's creation. Full disclosure, I'm undecided. Um, I haven't uh, landed on a particular position, and it's okay if you haven't either. But all of the point is that all of these views are compatible with Genesis because Genesis isn't a scientific account of creation. It's a literary one. Genesis 1 is not telling us how the world was made. It's not telling us the mechanisms that God used, but it's telling us 
who made it and why he made it. Modern science didn't exist when Genesis 1 and 2 was written. It was written to a group of people who had just been slaves from, from slavery in Egypt. And it was written to tell them who they were, who their God was, and what their place was in this world. And so for that reason, this is not an issue that should divide Bible-believing Christians. If you hold a different position than someone else, this is not, some, this is not an issue uh, that should divide uh, people who, Christians who believe the Bible. This is an issue that we would describe as an open-handed issue, that we could, um, we could all believe Genesis 1-2 is true and yet not, um, not divide over this, not, not uh, still respect one another. Um, and that's because the Bible is telling us not how we did it, but who did it. Number four, the biblical story of creation gives us a rational basis to enjoy the natural world, to care for it, and to do science. So Genesis 1.1 says that in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a world that is full of beauty and wonder and order. Uh, this is obvious. I don't have to, you know, all you have to do is go outside and just see the, the stunning beauty of the natural world from the food we eat, the air we breathe, the, the flowers we pick, the mountains we climb, right? God made all of these things for us to enjoy. But he didn't just make uh, this world for us to enjoy. He also put us in charge of it. He put us to take care of it, to rule over it, to steward it. That's why we should care about the environment, right? But he didn't just put us in charge to take care of it. He also created the laws that order it and, that, and sustain it. So things like Newton's laws of motion, the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity. All of these are, are norms that God created to sustain the world. The Bible teaches not only that God is a creator, but also that he is the sustainer. And it is because we believe that an ordered God made an ordered universe that doing science makes complete sense within a Christian worldview. When we do science, we're discovering more and more of the world that God has made. This is why if you're in the sciences, if you're in a science class, that's a high calling. You're studying the world that God has made. I think it's harder for an atheist to, to explain why we can even do science in the first place. How did we get such an ordered universe? Why are the laws of nature so finely tuned? Why is it that we can actually go about the work of science? I think that's easier for a Christian to answer than an atheist. Number five, the resurrection is the strongest affirmation that the material world matters and therefore, so does science. I would bet that if you are a science major, I would bet that at some point that you experienced the wonder and the beauty and the complexity of the world. At some point, maybe it's when you were a kid in school in a science class, or maybe it's when you were enjoying the great outdoors, or you were studying, you know, looking at bugs or plants, that there was something about the natural world that, that captured your imagination. There was something about it that was beautiful and, and wonderful to you, and, and, and maybe even if you're not even a science major, I, I would guess that that happened for you at some point. And what I want to say to you is that at the center of the Christian faith, at the core of what we believe, is, is the belief in resurrection. That Jesus Christ lived, that he died, and that he rose again. And our, our central hope is in him, that our life is in him, that just as he died and rose again, that our life is in him, and we will also as well, and that he will one day bring resurrection, not just to us and our bodies, but to the whole cosmos, the whole universe. Our hope is that one day that all things will be 
Renewed and Restored. One of my favorite novels is a, is a book, is a, a novel by Marilyn Robinson called Gilead. And Gilead is a story about a small town in Iowa. And the narrator is talking at one point, and he's describing one of his older friends. And his older friend's name is Boughton, and he's towards the end of his life, and he, he, because he's at the end of his life, he thinks a lot about heaven. And so the narrator describes how his friend is thinking about heaven. And he says, Boughton says that he has more ideas about heaven every day. And he said, mainly, I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by 10 or 12 if I had the energy. But two is much more than sufficient for my purposes. So he's just sitting there, multiplying the feel of the wind by two, multiplying the smell of the grass by two. Listen, resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that our future is one in which the splendors of the world will be multiplied. See, Buddhism, if you, if you believe in Buddhism, the, the world is a, the material world is a physical illusion. If you believe in naturalism or a secular view of the world, the world is real, but it's not going to last. Buddhism says the world uh, isn't real. Naturalism says the world's real, but it's not going to last. Christianity, because of resurrection, says the world is real and it matters and it's going to last and it's going to be restored. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a hope in a future in which the wonders of this world are going to be multiplied. And that means that we're going to do the vocation, the calling, the work of science forever. There's going to be the world and the whole universe to explore. The resurrection means it's the greatest affirmation that, that this world matters and therefore science matters. You might say, well, yeah, that sounds nice. You know, just because I want to believe in a world of wonder and beauty, that doesn't make it true. And I'll say you're right. It doesn't make it true. I do think there's a lot of historical reasons to believe in the resurrection, by the way. But my point is, even if you don't believe that that's true, even if you believe resurrection is a myth, don't you want it to be true? Don't you want the beauty of that to be true? Don't you want the wonders of the world to be multiplied? Don't you want to live in a world where the beauty of it is going to be renewed and restored? That's the hope of the resurrection. That's why the resurrection matters for science. We're going to pause there. What we're going to do now is we're going to watch a short video. Um, and I encourage you to, to keep te texting in questions uh, while the video goes. And then we'll do some Q&A. Sound good? All right.